Father, please be with us just now. As always, we're seeking to see you more clearly. And please help us to see these stories today from your perspective. Help us to see the big picture of what you're really trying to accomplish with Samuel and Saul. Amen. We're really going to go through two major subjects here in the book of First Samuel. We're going to talk about the covenant box. There's a lot of discussion about that, interesting stories. And then we're going to discuss Saul. So First Samuel is really the story that goes up to the death of Saul. And then Second Samuel, next time we're going to talk about King David. And so the one after that will be going through uh, the Psalms of David. So 1 Samuel starts out telling about this, telling us about this man, Elkanah, from the tribe of Ephraim, who lived in the town of Ramah in the hill country of Ephraim. So this is just continuing right along here. We've had Joshua and then the judges, and these people are kind of settled, intermixed in the land. And of course, this man, Elkanah, had two wives. And you remember one was Hannah, who couldn't have children. And eventually God blessed her, and she had Samuel. Samuel, of course, grew up in the temple with Eli, and we read about these two sons of Eli. Sons of Eli were scoundrels. They paid no attention to the Lord or to the regulations. This sin of the sons of Eli was extremely serious in the Lord's sight because they treated the offerings of the Lord with such disrespect. And we get some details here. Eli was now very old. He kept hearing about everything his sons were doing to the Israelites and that they were even sleeping with the women who worked at the entrance to the tent of the Lord's presence. So he said to them, Why are you doing these things? Everybody tells me about the evil you are doing. Stop it, my sons. This is an awful thing the people of the Lord are talking about. If anyone sins against someone else, God can defend the one who's wrong, but who can defend someone who sins against the Lord? But they would not listen to their father And here we have a challenging uh, little passage here. For the Lord had decided to kill them. The boy Samuel continued to grow and to gain favor both with the Lord and with the people. And I found that anytime you're reading something like this and you come to a passage here, God had decided to kill them. Um, We wanted, how is all of this expressed in this time? And uh, we get some, uh, some helpful clues here. We'll read about the death of Saul, and the words, the story concludes with the words, "Thus God slew Saul." And you remember how Saul died? Suicide, right? It fell on his sword. But yet the concluding statement is, "God slew him." I mentioned this uh, a few weeks ago, but talking about David, listen to this story: The Lord was angry at Israel, and He made David think it would be a good idea to count the people in Israel and Judah. And read this verse in any version, 2 Samuel 24.1. God decided to make David think it would be a good idea to give the census. And we really, we wonder about that. That seems troubling. And we read the exact same description, same story in Chronicles. Satan wanted to bring, bring trouble on the people of Israel. So he made David decide to take a census. And we talked about the reality here is really, can Satan make us do something Bad. Well, really, David was trapped by his own desires. But here we have it expressed both ways. God did it. Satan did it. And so I think uh, here God decided to kill Eli's sons. Well, of course, what happened to Eli's sons? They died in battle. Okay, but yet we have it expressed in this way, which is, again, consistent with much of the language uh, of this time. 
But you remember the story, a frequently told kid's story about Samuel and how God keeps coming to him again and again in the night. And he gets this message, um, which is really a, a tough message about Eli's sons. But notice how Eli here kind of uh, threatens Samuel. Samuel remained in bed until morning. Then he opened the doors of the Lord's house. But Samuel was afraid to tell Eli about the vision. Hey, no wonder. Then Eli called Samuel. Samuel, my son, he said. Here I am, he responded. What did the Lord tell you, he asked. Please don't hide anything from me. May God strike you dead if you hide anything he told you from me. A good way to talk to a child, huh? May God strike you dead. And so Samuel told Eli everything. And Eli replied, and now here, I want you to think about Eli's response. Or I'm sorry, yeah, Eli's response. He is the Lord. May he do what he thinks is right. Now, what do you think about his response here? Uh, the message from God was, your sons are scoundrels and they're giving me a bad reputation because of the things that they're doing. And Eli's response is, well, may God do what he thinks is right. Should he have done something more decisive with his sons? And, um, you know, I, I think so. And so many times God will, some, will come very authoritatively and say, it's going to be this way. And then there's repentance and things change. And we talked about this last uh, week. Remember, God said to the people, I will not rescue you anymore. Go after these other gods. And what happened? The people changed their minds. They repented. And the Israelites put aside their foreign gods and served the Lord. God was grieved by their misery. And even though he just said, I'm not going to rescue you anymore, he rescued them time and time and time again. So the point is, this should have been a wake-up call to Eli and he should have done something about it. Just one other example here. Uh, all the way through the Old Testament, uh, we'll have to discuss this in more detail later, but we have God changing his mind. Remember the story of uh, Jonah comes to Nineveh and the people say, maybe God will change his mind. And of course he did. He changed his mind. And you remember how happy Jonah was about all of this. I know you were a loving and merciful God, always patient, always kind, always ready to change your mind and not punish what does that mean? God changes his mind. And then we have statements like this, I am the Lord and I do not change. Well, I would say God does not change in character. He is always the same in character. To us, it may seem like he's different in character at times because he's meeting such a variety of circumstances. But just the point I'm trying to make here is, had Eli done something at this point, uh, I think... Uh, this should have been a wake-up call. He should have done something with his sons and maybe some good could have come out of this warning. Instead, he just says, okay, God, uh, do whatever you think is right. Well, we're going to follow over the next several slides the story of the covenant box. And this will take us a little bit of out of 1 Samuel, but to really piece the whole thing together, uh, we need to tell the story all the way up to Solomon. So at that time, the Philistines gathered to go to war against Israel. So the Israelites set out to fight them. The Philistines attacked, and after the fierce fighting, they defeated the Israelites and killed about 4,000 men on the battlefield. When the survivors came back to camp, the leaders of Israel said, Why did the Lord let the Philistines defeat us today? Let's go and bring the Lord's covenant box from Shiloh so that, they will go, so that he will go with us and save us from our enemies. This is kind of a good luck charm, isn't it? Let's get the covenant box, then there's no way we can be defeated in battle. So they sent messengers to Shiloh and got the covenant box of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned above the winged creatures. And Eli's two sons, the scoundrels, 
Hophni and Phinehas came along with the covenant box. When the covenant box arrived, the Israelites gave such a loud shout of joy that the earth shook. The Philistines heard the shouting and said, listen to all that shouting in the Hebrew camp. What does it mean? When they found out that the Lord's covenant box had arrived in the Hebrew camp, they were afraid and said, a God has come into their camp. We're lost. Nothing like this has ever happened to us before. Who can save us from those powerful gods? Kind of interesting plural here. They are the gods who slaughtered the Egyptians in the desert. Be brave, Philistines. Fight like men or we will become slaves to the Hebrews just as they were our slaves. So fight like men. And the Philistines fought hard and defeated the Israelites who went running to their homes. There was a great slaughter. 30,000 Israelite soldiers were killed. So it didn't work, bringing along the, uh, the good luck charm. And of course, the messenger escaped and ran back and Eli is anxiously waiting to find out uh, what's going to happen. And the messenger answered, Israel ran away from the Philistines. It was a terrible defeat for us. Besides that, your sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were killed and God's covenant box was captured. When the men mentioned the covenant box, Eli fell backward from his seat beside the gate. Interesting, he fell when the covenant box was mentioned and not when it was uh, mentioned about his sons being killed. But he fell backward. He was so old and fat that the fall broke his neck and he died. He had been a leader in Israel for 40 years. Okay, but what is really interesting is what happens to this covenant box as it's taken away. So after the Philistines captured the covenant box, they took it into the temple of their god Dagon, fish god, and set it up beside his statue. Early the next morning, the people of Ashdod saw that the statue of Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground in front of the Lord's covenant box. So they lifted it up and put it back in its place. Early the following morning, they saw that the statue had again fallen down in front of the covenant box. This time its head and both its arms were broken off and were lying in the doorway. Only the body was left. And maybe some of you have heard the story that uh, some little girl must have walked in and said, you know, we just glued his arms back on. Why are we worshiping Dagon? Okay, so twice he's kind of uh, humbled here uh, in front of the covenant box. But that is why even today the priests of Dagon and all his worshipers in Ashdod step over that place and do not walk on it. Don't you think God is really even trying to impress these people, at least saying that he's the more powerful God? But it didn't work. The Lord punished the people of Ashdod severely and terrified them. He punished them and the people in the surrounding territory by causing them to have tumors. It would be interesting to know exactly what those were. But when they saw what was happening, they said, the God of Israel is punishing us and our God, Dagon. We can't let the covenant box stay here any longer. So they sent messengers and called together all five of the Philistine kings and asked them, what shall we do with the covenant box of the God of Israel? Take it over to Gath, they answered. So they took it to Gath, another Philistine city. But after it arrived there, the Lord punished that city too and caused a great panic. He punished them with tumors, which developed in all the people of the city, young and old alike. So they sent the covenant box to Ekron, another Philistine city. But when it arrived there, the people cried out, they have brought the covenant box of the God of Israel here in order to kill us all. So again, they sent for all the Philistine kings and said, send the covenant box of Israel back to its own place so that it won't kill us and our families. There was panic throughout the city because God was punishing them so severely. 
Even those who did not die developed tumors, and the people cried out to their gods for help. So they have a big um, meeting here to discuss what to do and uh, with this covenant box. So the priests, magicians get together, and I won't read the whole account, but eventually they came up with this plan. You must make these models of the tumors and of the mice that are ravaging your country. Well, that might be an important clue. But And you must give honor to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will stop punishing you, your gods, and your land. Why should you be stubborn as the king of Egypt and the Egyptians were? Isn't it interesting? They knew their history about what happened, plagues of Egypt. Don't forget how God made fools of them until they let the Israelites leave Egypt. So prepare a new wagon and two cows that had never been yoked, hitch them to the wagon and drive their calves back to the barn. So they push the covenant box on this wagon in the direction of Israel. And it arrived. The people of Beth Shemesh were reaping wheat in the valley when suddenly they looked up and saw the covenant box. They were overjoyed at the sight. Okay, it was stolen. Now they have it back, back in Israel's hands. And, um, you know, these passages, it would be easier just to skip over these. But right in this passage, they peeked. And so they peeked in the covenant box, you know, just like uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. And so the Lord killed 70 of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked inside the covenant box. And the people mourned because the Lord had caused such a great slaughter among them. So the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who can stand before the Lord, this holy God? Where can we send him to get him away from us? They sent messengers to the people of Kiriath-Jerim to say, The Philistines have returned the Lord's covenant box. Come down and get it. And it was taken to that city uh, for a time. Okay, I want to come back to this when we finish the whole section here on the covenant box here. Why is God exerting such power that if you peek, 70 people die immediately? And again, it brings images of movies that we've seen. And if the covenant box were found today, and if we peeked, would, uh, would the same thing happen? Well, let, let's finish the whole section here. And we move on to David. Because the covenant box has remained there the whole time, now David is king, and so he has a good idea to go and get the covenant box, which was ignored while Saul was king. Really, ship belongs in Jerusalem, right? The people were pleased with his suggestion and agreed to it. So David assembled the people of Israel from all over the country, from the Egyptian border in the south to Hamath Pass in the north, in order to bring the covenant box from Kiriath-Jerim to Jerusalem. Sounds like a good idea. Let's get, the, let's get it in the temple, which hadn't been built yet, um, but it belongs in Jerusalem. And here we have, again, one of these very, very challenging, difficult stories which um, can put God in a bad light. As they came to the threshing place, the oxen stumbled, and Uzzah reached out and took hold of the covenant box. At once, the Lord became angry with Uzzah and killed him for touching the box. He died there in God's presence, and so that place has been called Perez Uzzah ever since. David was furious because the Lord had punished Uzzah in anger. Then David was afraid of God and said, How can I take the covenant box with me now? How do you approach a story like this? Um, Uzzah reaching out to steady the ark, and um, he's struck down and dies. 
you know, we've, we've said and, and shown evidence for Jesus being the God of the Old Testament. And we imagine what we know about Jesus and here a person dying for trying to steady an ark. And how do we harmonize um, all of this? Well, one thing we can say for sure, and again, we'll come back to it, I think, is these things we see in the Old Testament do not happen because of the severity of the sin, or are we willing to say that studying the ark was worse than Hitler or some of the worst people in human history? Okay, so it can't just be, oh, that is over the top. That's so bad that God has to strike someone down for that. So God must have a reason for doing these things. And one thing I would just say against the, well, the end justifies the means, then from God's perspective is, remember, uh, Uzzah will rise again. Same character, same train of thought. And this brings us to what's the purpose then of the resurrection. But again, this, uh, you know, so many of these things that we see happen, it's a time out, okay? But uh, there will be another resurrection. And people like the, uh, the firstborn boys of Egypt, they weren't killed because they were bad. They were killed because God was defeating the false gods of Egypt. And that was what was necessary. Maybe some of those were good boys and they'll arise in the right resurrection. So again, it wasn't because he killed them because they were bad boys. Just like I don't think we can say with Uzzah, there's no word in scripture that Uzzah won't be in heaven. Okay, it's a, I would at least uh, consider that as a possibility. But God had to do this for a reason. And that's what we want to try to uh, figure out. Well, a little later on in First Chronicles, notice that they did some research about the covenant box and they discovered something. They said only Levites should carry the covenant box because they are the ones the Lord chose to carry it and serve him forever. And David concluded, because you were not there to carry it for the first time, the Lord our God punished us for not worshiping him as we should have done. There were rules about how you would transport the covenant box. And here they just slap it on a cart, not a big deal, get it up to Jerusalem. I mean, and they broke many of the rules for how they were supposed to treat this very sacred object, which was the symbol of God's power. And so I would say in this case, God's trying to get a message to David, who's just become king. And, you know, if you're going to treat these things with such little respect, you, the king, spiritual leader of the people, um, this is not a good start. So I would say with Uzzah, God's trying to get a message to David ultimately, and it looks like David got the message. But again, we're not finished. Let's continue on with the story. Then King Solomon, eventually now they build the whole temple, summoned all the leaders of the tribes and clans of Israel to assemble in Jerusalem in order to take the Lord's covenant box from Zion, David's city, to the temple. They all assembled at the time of the festival of shelters, when all the leaders had gathered, then the Levites lifted the covenant box and carried it to the temple. The priests and the Levites also moved the tent of the Lord's presence and all its equipment to the temple. King Solomon and all the people of Israel assembled in front of the covenant box and sacrificed a large number of sheep and cattle, too many to count. And it's interesting, God never asked them to sacrifice so much sheep and cattle, too many to count. But if you knew the history of what had happened with the covenant box, it's a little bit like fire insurance, right? We're going to make sure here that we um, will just be very careful. So Solomon sacrificed lots and lots of animals as they make this, um, dedicate this temple. 
Then the priest carried the covenant box of the Lord into the temple and put it in the most holy place beneath the winged creatures. And you remember what happened next, Solomon's prayer. And he said, now, O my God, look on us and listen to the prayers offered in this place. Rise up now, Lord God. And with the covenant box, notice the symbol of your power. Enter the temple and stay here forever. Bless your priests and all they do, and may all your people be happy because of your goodness to them. Lord God, do not reject the king you have chosen. Remember the love you had for your servant David. And when King Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and burned up the sacrifices that had been offered, and the dazzling light of the Lord's presence filled the temple. Very spectacular um, thing that happened here. Okay, but um, just a, a point on this. Things are just about to fall apart, aren't they? Solomon, remember, is going to go after other women just a short time later, other gods, and the kingdom splits. We're right on the verge of catastrophe here. And actually, through this whole time with the covenant box, uh, things were just really in the balance. We've talked about how bad the situation was with the people at this time. The covenant box is the symbol of God's power and... uh, God, all the way through the Old Testament, is desperately revealing his power just to at least show he's strong, to get a little bit of respect. And uh, we sometimes have a hard time identifying with that, but just imagine here you, medical school class, are like the people back in this time, and there's murder and strife within the class. Um, If we put it in a contemporary age, there's drug use in the back of the room, and uh, there's all kinds of stuff going on. Um, Now, let's just say I am still the same person here in character, but would the teaching methods need to be somewhat different? Would we need to have some rules and uh, some demonstration of power? And I don't know what that would be, but would there need to be a different interaction from the teacher if the class is in that kind of a rebellious situation? This this is what God is dealing with here in the Old Testament. So, So why so much display of power? You're familiar with These words, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Notice the beginning. And fear here doesn't mean, uh, you know, to be scared to death of God. That's the beginning of knowledge. But more, uh, I think, in this sense. To have knowledge, you must first have reverence for the Lord. And um, most of you don't have kids, but um, young kids, you know, a little respect, reverence, that at least has to be there. And sometimes that involves doing some things that you wouldn't, that would seem ridiculous for Uh, someone in their 20s. So this is the beginning. God's just trying to get a little respect um, in all of this. And they were on the brink of disaster. But we've got to finish the point here because this is what we often associate with glory, power, the brightness, the fire. That's the ultimate power and glory of God. But notice what happens here with the covenant box. Jerusalem and the temple were burned down by the Babylonians, 586, 587 B.C., After the captivity, the Jews come back, rebuild the temple again. And here we have very challenging words. The book of Haggai. The future glory of this temple, the new temple, which was being built, will be greater than its past glory. And remember, this new temple that was built, what happened to it? Uh, It never had the, the light show. When Solomon prayed, it never had the fire come down from heaven and the glory of God filled the temple in this way. And when the new temple was laid, it was so inferior to Solomon's temple that many of the older priests, Levites, and heads of clans had seen the first temple 
And as they watched the foundations of this temple being laid, they cried and wailed. It wasn't anything like Solomon's temple. And we know what happened to this temple um, just after, uh, not long after Jesus was resurrected, 70 AD, it was burned to the ground by the Romans. So the question is, in what way glory, future glory of this temple will be greater than its past glory? In what way did the second temple exceed Solomon's temple? Well, because there was a person in that temple, I would say. I mean, who dwelt, who walked? I mean, it was the humble carpenter from Nazareth who dwelled in the new temple. And this is the ultimate glory of God. We associate glory with lights and power, and it ultimately is about the character of God. John 17, we've read this so many times, it's such a key passage. Eternal life means to know you the only true God, and to know Jesus Christ. That's how we know God, through Jesus Christ, whom you sent. And Jesus said, I have shown your glory on earth. And Jesus was not bright as he walked around, uh, except on the Mount of Transfiguration. I've shown your glory on earth. I've finished the work you gave me to do. Father, give me glory in your presence now, the same glory I had with you before the world was made. And he's just about to go out and die on a cross. And then he says, I have made you known to those you gave me out of the world. What was his mission, his purpose? I have made you known. I've revealed your name. Message Bible, I revealed your character. Ultimately, that's the, that's the glory that God has been desperately trying to reveal the whole time. But yet he's, he's kind of stuck in these uh, dark times revealing that he's powerful. But we do get this in the Old Testament. I left this out when we went through Exodus because we didn't have time. But remember, Moses said, please, God, let me see the dazzling light of your presence. Many versions have, let me see your glory. And the Lord answered, I will make all my splendor pass before you. And in your presence, I will pronounce my sacred name. And um, I I remember reading this, uh, not knowing what was going to happen a long, long time ago and thinking, we're going to get to see what God looks like. This is going to be exciting. He's going to pass by. And then the Lord passed in front of him and called out, I, the Lord, am a God who is full of compassion and pity, who is not easily angered, who shows great love and faithfulness. I keep my promise for thousands of generations and forgive evil and sin. And that is the dazzling light of God's presence. We get no description of face, eyes, and and all of that. So the glory of God ultimately is the glory uh, revealed by his character. And Paul, here in Hebrews, if Paul wrote Hebrews, uh, would describe it this way. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors many times and in many ways through the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. He is the one through whom God created the universe, the one whom God has chosen to possess all things at the end. And notice, he reflects the brightness of God's glory, and that can't be a physical brightness. This is a reflection of character, and he is the exact likeness of God's own being, not fingers and toes, but the exact likeness of God's character, sustaining the universe with his powerful word. So again, I think that's where the prophecy comes in here. It would exceed Solomon's temple in glory because of who walked in that temple and who revealed the character of the Father. And a last verse on this in Romans 1, Paul would say, "'For I am not ashamed of the gospel, the good news.'" Notice, what's real power? It 
is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it, the gospel, what is revealed? The righteousness of God is revealed, the goodness of God. We talked about this word righteousness last time. The good news ultimately is entirely about God. It's about what he's like in character. We could make so many verses to make a case for this, but Paul here in Romans talks about the gospel, the good news, that's the power. And what's revealed in the gospel? The righteousness, the goodness, the kindness, the graciousness of God. That's ultimately what the gospel is all about. And that's God's power. So we move from the covenant box to Saul. Kind of a sad story here with Saul, but uh, one of you asked me about this just before we started here and wondered why with Solomon did we have this forced labor and all of these other things, bad things that the king was doing. And this story here uh, tells us why. Samuel was displeased with their request for a king. People came and said, we want a king. So he prayed to the Lord and the Lord said, listen to everything the people say to you. You are not the one they've rejected. I am the one they've rejected as their king. Ever since I brought them out of Egypt, they've turned away from me and worshiped other gods. And now they are doing to you what they have always done to me. So then listen to them, but give them strict warnings and explain how their kings will treat them. And I'm not going to read through all of this, but um, I'll, I'll keep it up there on the website and you can go through and God in detail talks about what the king is going to do. He's going to force you into slave labor. You're going to fight for his army. He'll take your women and put them in his harem. He'll raise your taxes. Don't do it. It's a bad idea. And But the people paid no attention to Samuel, but said, no, we want a king so that we will be like other nations with our own king to rule us and lead us out to war and to fight our battles. And if you didn't know the story, just how would you predict? God has just said, it's a bad idea. Bad, bad idea. And the people say, no, we want it anyway. What would you think? God doesn't give us something that uh, would be bad for us. But Samuel listened to everything they said and then went and told it to the Lord. And the Lord answered, do what they want and give them a king. Kind of interesting. Perhaps if you persist in prayer about a certain thing over and over again, and God is maybe trying to persuade you away from that, you just might uh, receive what you ask for. The people here, they got their king. And was it devastating? Absolutely. Then Samuel told all the men of Israel to go back home. And, you know, I'm just thinking from a human perspective here, um, I'd be tempted here, if I'm going to give them a king, they don't want me anymore to be the leader, I'll give them a bad king. Did God give them a bad king? Well, listen to what happened. We read about when Saul turned to leave Samuel, Samuel's come up to tell him he's going to be the new king, God gave Saul a new nature. Uh, what does that mean? Gave him a new nature. And so Samuel called the people together for a religious gathering at Mizpah and said to them, The Lord, the God of Israel, says, I brought you out of Egypt and rescued you from the Egyptians and all the other peoples who are opposing you. I am your God, the one who rescues you from all your troubles and difficulties. But today you have rejected me and have asked me to give you a king. Very well then, gather yourselves before the Lord by tribes and by clans. And then Samuel had each tribe come forward and the Lord picked the tribe of Benjamin. Then Samuel had the families of the tribe of Benjamin come forward and the family of Matri was picked out. Then the men of the family of Matri came forward and Saul, son of Kish, was picked out. They looked for him 
But when they could not find him, they asked the Lord, Is there still someone else? Where's Saul? The Lord answered, and I'm trying to imagine how this works. The Lord answered, Saul is over there, hiding behind the supplies. Was this something everyone there heard God say? He's over there behind the supplies. Did he speak to just a few people? Um, But he's hiding, which I actually kind of uh, admire a little bit. He's not proud up front. You know, yeah, it's me, but he's, he's hiding. So they ran and brought Saul out to the people, and they could see that he was a foot taller than anyone else. Samuel said to the people, here is the man the Lord has chosen. There is no one else among us like him. And all the people shouted, long live the king, even though God had just said, you've rejected me and you want a king. Samuel explained to the people the rights and duties of a king and then wrote them in a book, which he deposited in a holy place. And then he sent everyone home. But notice, Saul also went back home to Gibeah and some powerful men whose whose hearts God had touched went with him. It would really seem to me that God chose the best man and even sends these people whose, whose hearts he had touched with Saul, gave him a new nature. He really wanted this to work, despite the fact that, uh, again, us in our human nature, I'd be miffed at this and it would be hard to just, you know, want to do the right thing. But of course, God always does the right thing. So he gave them a king, a good king. And um, just in the brief time we have, I would just want to reflect a little bit on what went wrong with Saul. And um, I won't read through all the verses here, but just to list some of the things, maybe you're familiar with uh, Samuel telling him to wait seven days. Saul uh, kind of panicked, didn't do it. And then in fighting the Philistines, Saul would say there's no time to consult the Lord as they're going out to battle. That uh, raised a little red flag because the priests are saying, let's consult God first. And Saul, the king, is saying, no, there's no time. And then another kind of red flag here, when the Israelites were weak with hunger that day because Saul had given a solemn oath and the order was a curse be on anyone who eats any food today before I take revenge on my enemies. So nobody had eaten anything all day. And you get kind of a sense here. I mean, are these Saul's enemies? Aren't they the Israelites? God is really their king. And Saul here is looking for personal revenge on his enemies. So they can't eat anything. And of course, Jonathan didn't know anything about this. And he uh, ate some honey. And Saul would say of his own son, may God strike me dead if you are not put to death. His own son. I mean, he could have gone back on this oath. And it's interesting here that the people said to Saul, will Jonathan, who won this great victory for Israel, be put to death? No, we promise by the living Lord that he will not lose even a hair from his head. What he did today was done with God's help. So the people saved Jonathan from being put to death and his father is here trying to persuade them to uh, put his son to death. That doesn't quite uh, seem right. Well, again, we have more problems later. Samuel heard that Saul had gone to the town of Carmel where he had built a monument to himself. Were the kings to be building monuments to themselves? Do we see some pride issues coming out here? And when they destroyed the Amalekites, uh, the, the... Samuel told Saul, destroy them completely, an issue we discussed uh, when we talked about Joshua. And he kept the loot. And uh, this, again, I find kind of humorous. Uh, For some of you, if you have kids, you might identify. Samuel came to Saul who said, the Lord bless you. I carried out the Lord's instructions. You know, Samuel had just said, destroy it completely. 
And Saul didn't. He kept the loot for himself. And uh, then as Samuel comes up, and I don't know, like a, a parent coming home, and if the child greets you at the door and says, Hi, Daddy, did everything you said? Right away, you know, okay, what's up? Right? And so uh, Saul says, I carried out the Lord's instructions, nervously aware that he did not. And Samuel asked, But what is this sound of sheep in my ears and this sound of cows that I hear? Why then did you not obey him? Why did you rush to grab the loot and so do what displeases the Lord? And we've talked about this Bible study as a story. It's very much we're telling the stories. But here we get a key text. But Samuel replied, What is more pleasing to the Lord, your burnt offerings and sacrifices, or your obedience to his voice? Obedience is far better than sacrifice. Listening to him is much better than offering the fat of rams. And here in, in Hebrew poetry called Hebrew parallelism, uh, the second line emphasizes and adds meaning to the first line. So notice the first line here, obedience is far better than sacrifice. And the second line, listening to him is much better than offering the fat of lambs. God very much wants a willingness to listen. And you know, these words are so related. Um, calling out to kids who are maybe disobeying, you might say, listen, and you really mean obey, okay? But it's a, you want your children to understand what you ask them to do, listen and understand. And uh, this verse is repeated in various ways so many times in the Old Testament, uh, just once here in the Psalm 40 in the message version, so it might sound a little different than you're familiar with it, but doing something for you, bringing something to you, that's not what you're after. Being religious, acting pious, that's not what you're asking for. Instead, you've opened my ears so I can listen. God wants us, first and foremost, to have a willingness to listen, to change our mind. And this, uh, these verses just remind me of something uh, here, even in the New Testament. Jesus in Mark 1 goes out for his mission and he says, The time has come, the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe the good news. And we hear words like repentance and we begin thinking of forgiveness and the legal transaction and all of this. Uh, but what's really interesting here is the word for repentance is metanoia. Noia is brain. And uh, well, like paranoia, para is like parallel. So to be paranoid is literally to be standing beside oneself. And we still use that expression, right? How are you today? Oh, I'm beside myself. That's really what it is to be paranoid. Uh, metanoia, meta is change, like metamorphosis. And so repentance is really just saying to change your mind. That's what repentance is. And so Jesus Christ came into the world to change our minds. He came to change our minds ultimately about who God is. Repentance. And that's why I love here other versions. This was the NIV which is a great version, but listen to the God, God's Word version of this. The time has come and the kingdom of God is near. Change the way you think and act and believe the good news. And if we believe the good news, that is changing the way we think and act. But anyway, this kind of ties in here uh, to Samuel's words to listen. Well, we don't have time here trying to get through the whole book of 1 Samuel briefly, but of course... You'll recall the great jealousy that Saul had of David, tried to kill him so many times, even though David was kind to him, persecuted him, chased him all over the place. And uh, when the priest helped David, 
uh, Saul just horrible. He had all the inhabitants of Nob, the city priests put to death, men and women, children and babies, cattle, donkeys and sheep. They were all killed because they helped David. He really became insane over time. And if we have time here, just to, to mention one last story because it's a difficult one with King Saul, the witch of Endor. And the real question is, uh, which I want you to think about is, um, was the witch of Endor, was, well, ultimately, was that really Samuel that came down and talked with Saul? Let's read the story. This is, again, the very end of Saul's life. Now Samuel had died and all the Israelites had mourned for him and had buried him in the hometown of Ramah. Saul had forced all the fortune tellers and mediums to leave Israel. The Philistine troops assembled and camped near the town of Shunem. Saul gathered the Israelites and camped at Mount Gilboa. When Saul saw the Philistine army, he was terrified. And so he asked the Lord what to do. But the Lord did not answer him at all, either by dreams or by the use of Urim or Thummim or by the prophets. These were the designed uh, mediums here to communicate with God. Then Saul, I shouldn't use the word mediums, the designed uh, ways to communicate with God. Then Saul ordered his officials, find me a woman who is a medium and I will go and consult her. There is one in Endor, they answered. So Saul disguised himself. He put on different clothes. And after dark, he went with two of his men to see the woman. Consult the spirits for me and tell me what is going to happen, he said to her. Call up the spirit of the man I name. The woman answered, surely you know that King Saul, what King Saul has done, how he forced the fortune tellers and mediums to leave Israel. Why then are you trying to trap me and get me killed? Then Saul made a sacred vow by the living Lord, I promise that you will not be punished for doing this, he told her. Whom shall I call up for you, the woman asked. Samuel, he answered. When the woman saw Samuel, she screamed and said to Saul, why have you tricked me? You are King Saul. Don't be afraid, the king said to her. What do you see? I see a spirit coming up from the earth, she answered. What does it look like, he asked. It's an old man coming up, she answered. He's wearing a cloak. Then Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed to the ground in respect. Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me? Why did you make me come back? Saul answered, I am in great trouble. The Philistines are at war with me, and God has abandoned me. He doesn't answer me anymore, either by prophets or by dreams. And so I have called you for you to tell me what I must do. And Samuel said, Why do you call me when the Lord has abandoned you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you what he told you through me. He has taken the kingdom away from you and given it to David instead. You disobeyed the Lord's command and did not completely destroy the Amalekites and all they had. That is why the Lord is doing this to you now. He will give you and Israel over to the Philistines. Tomorrow, you and your sons will join me and the Lord will also give the army of Israel over to the Philistines. At once, Saul fell down and lay stretched out on the ground, terrified by what Samuel had said. He was weak because he had not eaten anything all day and all night. So the question here is, uh, was that really Samuel that came up? And how would you know or how could you say with confidence one way or the other? I don't know. Any of you uh, formed an opinion on this story? Do you think it was really Samuel? What, uh, I heard a couple of you say, no, why not? Didn't this come true, pretty much, what uh, the words of Samuel? Saul and his sons were killed. They lost the battle. If a prophecy comes true, then wouldn't that uh, seem to indicate that um, 
this was of God? Well, I think there are a couple things here we could argue on this. Um, one question, would God use a forbidden practice to communicate with Saul? And we have these words here in Leviticus. If any of you go to advice to people who consult the spirits of the dead, I will turn against you and will no longer consider you one of my people. In Isaiah 8.19, people will say to you, ask for help from the mediums and the fortune tellers who whisper and mutter. Shouldn't people ask their God for help instead? Why should they ask the dead to help the living? So that's one, I think, uh, serious question here is why would God uh, actually use something that he had so clearly uh, forbidden? And we have interesting words here in 1 Chronicles 10.13. So Saul died because he was unfaithful to the Lord and did not obey the Lord's instructions. He even tried to conjure up the underworld spirits. Kind of interesting. Was he successful? Well, he tried. Now, uh, the words here of Samuel or whoever this was. Why have you disturbed me? Why did you make me come back? Uh, would a medium have power to bring righteous Samuel? Uh, let's leave all this about whether people go straight to heaven or not uh, aside, but let's just assume Samuel's up enjoying heaven. Would he be powerless if a, a medium said, get down here and uh, give a message to Saul? Um, can you imagine God saying, well, my hands are tied. You've got to go down there and, uh, and give this message. So again, I can't see where a medium would be able to force Samuel down to give this message. Tomorrow you and your sons will join me um, in heaven. Saul and Samuel were joined together in heaven later on. Um, well, I think there are several things here that uh, suggest that this was, it was actually not Samuel that came up. And... Uh, Certainly, if Satan were trying to completely overwhelm and defeat Saul, this would be a good way to do it. And Saul falls down, collapses, basically. Uh, he was a defeated man at this point. And I've liked, uh, some have interpreted that this was perhaps Satan's attempt to lead the people, as they were so often tempted to do, to follow the spirits and the mediums. Because look at the prophecy, it came true. But really, if you were Satan, I mean, wasn't this pretty much written in stone at this point? He sees the Philistines, the Israelites, and Saul here is a defeated man. This is not that much of a prophetic gift here to say, look, you're about to collapse and you're going to be killed tomorrow. And notice this very important verse in Deuteronomy 13. Prophets or interpreters of dreams may promise a miracle or a wonder in order to lead you to worship and serve gods that you have not worshipped before. But notice, even if what they promise comes true, do not pay any attention to them. So a prophecy can come true. We may see a miracle, but if it is not in harmony with what we know about God, ultimately, as revealed by Jesus, we would reject it, never mind the miracle, never mind the prophecy that came true. Well, next time we'll talk about uh, 2 Samuel, uh, the life of David, very, very colorful. So we'll have a lot to talk about. Let's pray. <clears throat> Dear Father, please help us to learn from these stories, from the mistakes of Saul, from the need that you had to reveal so much power during this time. Help us to respond to the still, small voice of truth. Help us to respond primarily to your goodness and to your love. And may that be the glory that is in us. Amen.